Oh my goodness, you guys, I'm so excited for you to take part in this conversation for today's episode with Dr. Sapna Doshi. Before I dive into today's episode, I did want to make you aware that I'm going to be having free live masterclasses coming live on April 12th, and the masterclass is going to be about the top three myths about weight and health motivation. It's going to be fun, engaging, fast-paced. You'll get to interact with me, make comments about how you uh, relate to some of these concepts, and then you will have a live Q&A with me at the end. I'll be talking about this new online program I have, how you can work with me. It's going to be so much fun. So make sure that you are on my email list, drshawnhondorp.com forward slash contact is the way to sign up for the email list. Or you can sign up for any of my freebies that I've talked about before. But just make sure if you're interested in this masterclass, I'm only going to be doing it for the week of April 12th. So make sure that you sign up and you're the first to know. So I can't wait to see you there. And yeah, let's dive into today's episode though. And so today I talked to Dr. Sapna Doshi. She is a very good friend of mine. I had so much fun talking with her. She and I have very similar training and we talk about that. But we dive into a lot today. It's a longer episode, so I want to get right into it. But there's so much good here. We talk about why behavioral weight loss so often fails. We talk about the National Weight Control Registry, which is a large registry of people that have lost over 30 pounds and kept it off. And we talk about what we know about those folks, what we don't, and we also dive into Dr. Doshi's personal experiences and navigating her, her relationship with food as a South Asian individual, as well as someone diagnosed with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So you get another insider look into how a psychologist deals with their relationship with food with all the knowledge that we have. Finally, among other topics, we also talk about how to work on improving your relationship with food, even when weight loss is a goal, as Dr. Doshi also has a lot of experience working with folks who do have weight loss as a goal, but also really want to work on the long-term end game and don't want just a quick fix. So we dive into all of that. It's so good. Please stay till the end. Check out this episode, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. As a final reminder, this podcast and blog is all for educational purposes only and should not be construed as any form of medical advice. So let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome to Dr. Sapna Doshi to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I am giddy excited to have this conversation with you today because you and I have known each other a long time. Just a background for the listeners. Sapna and I were in the same uh, research lab in graduate school the same year. And that's actually kind of rare. So we were kind of became attached at the hip. It's a good thing we liked each other. So we've uh, worked in very similar fields in both weight management and eating disorders. We have very similar background and training. And so we both went to Drexel University for our master's and PhD. And uh, you also were undergrad at Drexel. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to hear a little bit more about your professional background in a minute. But now you have a thriving practice in the DC, Virginia metropolitan area, and that I'm now a part of. So it's been really cool to reconnect with you professionally. And I'm so excited to share this conversation with the listeners today, because I think it's going to be incredibly powerful for a number of reasons. And I'm just so grateful for you for being here. So thank you. Thank you. I am so excited. As you said, we've, we've, known each other forever now it seems and yep. we've had sessions on this topic for so long so I'm excited to be able to share what we've been thinking about with others. Absolutely well let's dive in so I gave a little preview to your professional background but can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your professional background to start? Yeah sure so I'm a clinical psychologist and I uh, got my PhD from Drexel with Sean and then went on to do my internship at Duke University Medical Center. And then I moved to the Washington DC um, area. And I've been here for about eight and a half years and about six years ago, I started my own private practice, Mind Body Health. And I started it with just kind of special, like focusing on my specialties of eating disorders, weight management, health psychology, anxiety disorders, depression. And 
not quite knowing where it was gonna go, my caseload got full. And so I brought on a second person who was doing very similar work to what I was doing and was trained in a similar way. And then their caseload got full. And then we just, I just kept going through that process. So now we're at the point of having 25 clinicians, dietitians, and psychologists, and um, all kind of focusing on, in these specific areas. We have two locations, one in Arlington, Virginia, one in Washington, DC in the Capitol Hill area. And it's just really cool to see that we can uh, help so many people in these specific areas. And um, so now I'm just, I'm focusing on managing the practice and also still seeing clients and doing clinical work. Yeah, you've really focused. I mean, you've grown very quickly and I know that's been an interesting journey for you, but you've always been very focused on evidence-based care. And that's been, I think, really resonated with a lot of people and that, that seek you out. Yeah. You know, I think people are becoming more informed themselves about cognitive behavior therapy and those types of approaches and really seeking that out. So I'm glad we're able to offer that. Absolutely. Well, you have a wealth of knowledge to share in so many areas. So let's dive in. So is there anything you could share with us about your personal relationship with food, exercise, and or your body that you've noticed that you think might help someone? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I feel like I honestly feel like I could write a whole book on my relationship with food, my body, exercise mm -hmm. from my whole entire life, because it's interesting. You just, your relationship with food and your body change at different points in your life. So I guess I'll share like what's going on with me right now. Mm -hmm. So for many years, I've dealt with a digestive disorder or a condition called SIBO or SIBO. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it, but um, essentially it's just, it's a condition in which there is no cure, but it's just kind of symptom management. And I think the medical field's still working on catching up on how to best help patients with this condition. And it's been a blessing and a curse in many ways. It's been a nightmare to kind of navigate and figure out and deal with, but it's given me so much insight into my clients. So with this condition, I do, I've been deprived from some of my favorite foods that end up flare, causing my um, digestive issues to flare up. And um, I've had, I've felt restricted and, um, you know, there, I've had to put way more thought into food than I care to. Mm -hmm. And so it's given me insight into clients that voluntarily kind of do this. They deprive themselves from their favorite foods and they restrict. Um, so it's given me a whole new perspective on, on my work. Um, but it's been a blessing because I've been forced in many ways to practice what I'm talking to clients about all the time. And I'm just learning to, um, to really, really pay attention and listen to my body. So I'm learning what foods my body responds to, what foods my body does not respond to. And also realizing that that's, it's not so absolute. So my body can tolerate small amounts of certain types of foods, too much of certain types of foods irritates it. So it's just a constant evolving listening to my body. Mm -hmm. But I'm also learning that aiming to be perfect around that is one, impossible, but two, really stressful. Mm -hmm. And so I've really learned to practice um, giving myself a lot of grace and that I will eat some things sometimes that I know will cause, you know, some issues within me, but I, you know, I, I understand that that's part of this process that I cannot aim to be per perfect, but I'm trying to do the best that I can. Yeah. So with that, and just for the listeners, SIBO, I'm not sure how we pronounce it either. We are not experts in that, but it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, correct? And it, I don't know a ton about it. I know you and I have talked a little bit about it, but it basically has caused you a lot of like discomfort, distress, and have had you made you have to take a closer look at some of these choices where we talk about like, we'll talk in a bit about intuitive eating and things. It's put some additional constraints around um, that, that process for you. And you've, and that's been what, a couple of years since you've noticed these issues or I, I can't remember the timeline, but it's a newer thing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I was diagnosed with it probably back in 2013, but it's- Oh, it's, wow. Okay. Yeah, I've been- It's been a while. 
Yeah, it's, I've been struggling with it over the years, but it, it kind of comes and goes. And so right now it, it's a little bit of a, in a flare up and just kind of managing that now. Okay. Yeah. So it put additional like layer to that relationship with food question that right. you've navigated. And it sounds like it's given you more understanding and compassion for some things that clients go through. And also that it's not that that flexibility is really important, but it's not always like one easy solution, like just eat this way or yeah. So, okay. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That helps to give some context and background, at least to things that you've struggled with more recently and how that's impacted you. So um, we'll, we'll come back to some of that, some of these points, but what um, in terms of professionally, I'm curious, what interested you in the field of clinical health psychology initially? So right after undergrad, I went to work for a professor at Brown University who was studying something called the immigrant paradox. And I was in the process of figuring out, you know, if I go to grad school, what, what piques my interest? And she, she was researching this effect of how immigrants come here for better opportunities, but sometimes fare worse in some regards. One of them was obesity. And so it just really piqued my interest because I thought about my parents' generation, my aunts and uncles, and all of their friends, and how they were developing these chronic health conditions. And so it just got me excited to think that, you know, just through talk therapy, being able to talk about your thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behavior, that you can have an impact on someone's health and longevity. And, you know, I want to keep my parents around as long as I can. So I thought, very cool. Like, if I can get involved in that, that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I forgot that that was, I remember you sharing some of your experiences at Brown. And so I uh, forgot how that was like the initial thing that sparked it. And then of course, for so many of us, it's professional and personal. There's a lot of intermixing and that I think is, makes a lot of sense, right? We're motivated by the things that matter to us. So yep. in terms of the field of, I guess, clinical health psychology specifically, what do you think the field is doing well? Yeah, and so I, what I love about the field and how it's evolved, I think when we used to think about health, we used to focus so much <clears throat> on nutrition and exercise specifically for health. And I think that we've come a long way in understanding just more how more comprehensive we have to be when we think about health. So we have to think about um, sleep. We have to think about stress. We have to think about the environment that you're in. Um, societal pressures, you know, race and culture and the stressors that come with that sometimes. Um, and, and just thinking about your career, your relationships, there's so much, your mental health that goes into your physical well-being. So I think we've done a nice job kind of moving in that direction and addressing all these different areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think we're doing a not me particular, but people in these industries of focusing on clinical health um, and well-being are, are doing a good job creating apps that, you know, people can explore themselves. Nearly every single one of my clients is getting a list of mindfulness meditation apps they should download and experiment with because we know that there's a lot people can do to help themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. I always sort of find myself sort of complaining about how we don't disseminate evidence enough, but there are areas where we are doing that and where we are getting evidence-based tools. Mindfulness is definitely a great example of that where this is happening, there is progress. And uh, so that's a, that's a good point. And yeah, broadening that view of health to much, much more than just what we put in our body and how we move, yeah. So where do you think we as a field are missing the mark? I definitely think there's way too much emphasis on weight loss and BMI. And I know you and I have talked about this. This is one of my biggest pet peeves um, because, you know, I see the whole spectrum. I see folks that are struggling with weight and being overweight or, ob or obese, but also people who are struggling with anorexia. And I think about clients that come into me who are struggling with their weight wanting to avoid seeing the doctor because they're telling them that, that their BMI is too high and they need to lose weight. And then they leave the office and there's so many unhealthy ways to, to lose weight. And so then we're not really focusing on health. 
Mm -hmm. um, and BMI to me is just such an arbitrary measure of health. It doesn't consider blood work at all. And um, we know that people can be in higher BMI ranges and be very healthy. So, mm -hmm. so I think we're still too focused on that. And I, I really think that, I mean, we know that the dieting industry, the fitness industry has long like touted, like, this is going to be the one thing that helps you. And so buy my solution. But I also think the academic world has a ways to go because I think everyone's trying to find the one thing. And I think we've been at that forever. And there is no one thing. We're all so different in terms of our genetics, our backgrounds, our relationship with food that mm -hmm. I think we just need to move away from that and start individualizing our approaches to the person. Yeah. And the obviously the weight loss industry is very invested in this promise of a solution, but we see that in the research academic world, as much as you and I love research, it's not just not individualized. I think that's a piece of it. I, and I, but it's also this idea that it's rooted in this smaller is better, this like paradox, right? Smaller is always healthier. And that is you and I've kind of had our similar journeys of moving away from that and how much our views were colored of that. And we didn't even realize it when we're in, in programs where we're sort of promoting calorie counting and weight loss in a way that, yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that I appreciate that. And there's a lot of room for growth. <laughs> so um, you know, the, the other, not somewhat the other end of the spectrum of focusing on weight loss is approaches that are more consistent with health at every size, which is a social movement, but also an evidence-based movement and intuitive eating type approaches, listening to your body. You know, we won't go over every single aspect of that, but if, if listeners have heard about those approaches, I'm curious your thoughts about those approaches in terms of how we help people improve health and well-being. Yeah. So I, I am so appreciative of the Healthy at Every Size movement, intuitive eating, because it, it finally offered an alternative. And we know that there's research to support that these approaches can help people um, become healthier, even more so than any weight loss uh, approach. Um, so, and I, I so appreciate the emphasis on body diversity and appreciation that has been missing from the conversation for far too long. So I have so much respect for, for that movement and really appreciate it um, in many ways. There, there are a couple of things that I struggle with though. It, you just mentioned how you know, we were trained in one specific way and we've really, you and I have opened ourselves up to challenging if that's the appropriate way to do things and stayed really, I think, open-minded and had discussions about if we could be doing this better. And, the, the one issue that I, I find professionally as a clinician, and I'm even nervous to talk about it on the podcast, mm -hmm. is that I think that some people can be so uh, tightly attached to this approach that it can feel, and I, I've witnessed this at conferences or even with myself, where um, it, it's, it feels a little bit like the cancel culture. Like if you don't, if you talk about weight loss, that's wrong, that's bad, and you're not allowed to do that. And I don't think that that's everyone's intention with that movement, but I, I can sometimes feel that way. And I think that that's, we can alienate a huge group of people who are somewhere in the middle, not sure exactly which way they want to mm -hmm. go. And, and my perspective is we got to meet the client where they're at and talk to them. If they want to talk about weight loss, I'm here to talk to them about it, but make sure they're doing it in a way that honors like the life they want to live and doing it well in a safe way. Yeah, right. And it's that it's whether it's intended or not, it's experienced as shaming, right? If you say the word, if you utter the word weight loss, then you're a horrible human being. And as a provider, that's the last thing we want to feel. Of course, we are, that's never how we want to feel about any work that we're doing. And so it feels very threatening. It also feels like, and, you know, I've talked about on this podcast where as a society, very polarized right now, maybe more so than we ever have been. And I always go back to like Brene Brown, this idea of like true belonging is belonging to yourself and believing what you believe, even if it's not a hundred percent in one group camp or the other. And that's so uncomfortable though. And it's uncomfortable when you 
again, whether it's intended or not, and like you said, I don't think most of the time, I don't think that's the intention, but shame is never a social justice tool. It doesn't ever evoke any positive change. And so that uh, you've, you've always had that approach of like, let's meet someone where they're at, let's listen to their goals and go from there. And uh, I've always appreciated that for sure. Yeah, thanks. And, and it's really the culture I'm trying to promote within our practice amongst our colleagues. We definitely have some folks on our staff that are that identify very strongly with healthy at every size. And then people like you and I who have been more classically trained in behavioral weight loss treatments. And I think we're all learning from one another and staying open to hearing each other's experiences and training and mm-hmm. figuring and taking pieces of what I don't know and other people taking pieces of what they don't know and learning from me and using what works with the client and being flexible. Yes. Yeah. It's been cool to see the environment you've created. And I guess the other point alongside of what you said of meet the person where they're at is also let's not close off the discussion from the medical community providers, right? Who might have more entrenched views. Typically they do, right? Weight equals health. It's very you know, to some extent. And so let's not cut off those conversations. Let's bring everyone into the conversation in a productive way, hopefully. And that's, um, yeah, that's definitely one of my goals with this podcast even, right? Like no one should feel shame. Sometimes I feel like look back on the things that I've done working with people. I'm like, oh, I hope I didn't harm that person or, you know, inadvertently. But yeah, for me to wallow in or feel shame about that, you can notice it and move on. But we all do the best we can with the information we have and we're all learning. So I think that that's going to be much more, more productive. Um, and along somewhat along the, that same vein in, in terms of working within healthcare settings, helping people lose weight, what struggles have you had, if any, on doing that without helping them lose weight, but without getting out of touch with hunger fullness signals? Cause I think that can be a challenge. Oh yeah, that's definitely a challenge, you know, because I, I think people come in and they they really, really want a set of rules. Like, what do I eat? What do I not eat? How much do I eat? What kind of exercise do I do? And whenever you're following someone's someone else's rules or plan or whatever, you're losing touch with your own internal cues. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because, um, you know, it can feel really overwhelming, I think, for the client who's had this long history of following someone else's rules for me to say, Hey, we're going to turn inward. And I think that can be super overwhelming. And, and I think clients can feel lost. Like, how do I even do that? Where do I start? What are the important things to be looking for and thinking about? And so I I think that's just the work that is so important that we do is being there by their side as they kind of explore these things. And so it's helping them understand that we can talk about weight loss and you can go about weight loss while still tuning into yourself. But I may need to give them some pointers and what to look for, how to think about it. Um, But it's challenging because there's a strong attachment to, I want the rules. I want to know exactly how to do this so I can lose weight for sure. Yeah, I want the one, two, three step by step guide. And what you provide is more of a framework general suggestions with a lot of sort of flexibility built in so they can build uh, look inward and that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, We touched on this briefly already, but in this podcast, we often talk about learning from opposing viewpoints. Are there other ways we could do this better? And, And what would your suggestions be with regards to that? Yeah, I mean, I alluded to this earlier, but I think if we move towards more of an individualized approach, so I think for me personally, it's really listening to everybody's story in terms of their history with their relationship with their body. I mean, and food, my first question I always ask clients is tell me the first moment in your life in which you remember having a strained relationship with food or your body. And that just starts a whole entire dialogue and gives me so much more context to understanding this person and what their history, how their history is playing into the here and now and how that's impacting them today still. Um, But we've, I think we've just got to meet the client where they're at, move away from eat this, don't eat that, follow my rules um, and focusing more. Our our bodies are just way too complicated. Our relationships with food are way too complicated for us to do that. 
So I think individualizing it. Um, and a big thing that I'm focusing on in the work with my clients is talking about how food can be used and abused in some ways and what's its function. So, so many times I'm seeing a link between people's relationship with food and this desire to escape or suppress their emotions. So it's trying to understand what's going on inside of you emotionally or with your thoughts. And let's look at that so that you can have a better relationship with your emotions and thoughts so you don't need food to manage that so much. Mm -hmm. And you identify as South Asian. So how has that uh, impacted your relationship with food and your body? So growing up, being South Asian and, and growing up in America, um, the color of your skin is part of your body and that immediately can be challenging in America, right? And so um, I know for myself, I was lucky enough to have a lot of Indian friends growing up since as far back as I can remember. Um, but undoubtedly, you, you start to realize, I mean, I remember my my first experience with racism when I was five years old and I, I remember clear as day. So you just quickly learn that you're different and, it, and even at such a young age and as you're going into being a teenager and all that, it's just hard to reconcile. And so you, you already start getting into that compare contrast culture at such a very young age, but it's not just the American culture. It's, it's complicated within the South Asian culture as well. So um, there's issues around weight and skin color within the South Asian culture. So you have that layered on top as well. So being a lighter skinned Indian woman versus darker skin and being overweight versus thin, people will comment on that very openly. And that has a lot to do with how um, what kind of like guy you'll get to marry you kind of situation. And so you have those kinds of pressures as well. And it's, and I'll say like my parents never ever commented on my skin color or my weight and they never made me feel that way. But just being in that culture, it's just, it comes up. It's just all that you can't avoid it. You Was know? that common for like other, like other family members or other people to just like, that's just what they'll just say it often. Like, yeah, so it's interesting because here in America, if you were to comment straight up on like, you look like you've gained weight, that's considered really rude. Um, but in India, you know, in my parents' generation and my relatives and, and elders, in India, it's really not uncommon to just kind of point to someone and be like, you've gained weight or you've lost weight or just comment on your weight in some way. And it's interesting because there's, <laughs> there's also this little song and dance that happens when you're eating at someone's house and someone's hosting you for for dinner so they might you might walk in and be like you look like you've gained weight and then you're sitting down for dinner and they're like take more food take more food you have to try the dessert and it's just this like cultural practice that happens and it's rude if you don't you know take the extra food so it's just interesting but yeah there's this whole other layer of dealing with you know the comments you're going to get from the, your South Asian culture and the, the stuff you have to deal with there. And then also being a woman in America and dealing with the pressures there as well. Yeah. I think that's the thing that consistently surprises me and maybe it shouldn't. The more I have these conversations is just at a baseline level, I can speak to being a white woman growing up here. It's hard enough. Right. And then we have all these different intersections of different identities and layers. And it's like, Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot um, to process. And I think sometimes we, we just, just don't give people the space to do that. And so, but um, it just, yeah, it makes me sad that my friends and people I care about have had to deal with these additional layers. It's like living here is enough on it on its own. <laughs> That's right. And there's, I mean, I think within the South Asian culture, like I've done a lot of work to kind of focus on, I'm just doing me. I, you know, I'm going to eat what feels right to me and whatever my weight is, is my weight and not care so much what other people think. But that's also embedded in the culture, like what, how you live and how you, um, 
go about your life is reflective on your family too. And so there's, you know, there's various layers of pressure and, and you know, none of it's ill intended. It's just in our cultures are different and how yeah. we communicate things are different. And right. Um, sure. Yeah. Just again, the external pressure, we talk about internal, external motivation. It's like another layer of shoulds and pressure, which makes it harder you've worked hard to get to that more internal place, but it's uh, just more barriers. So, and you've done some work in research on cultural, cultural considerations for South Asian women. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned there? Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this because I never published my dissertation. So I actually <laughs> talked about it. Dissemination yeah. of research <laughs> happening <laughs> right here for the first time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I replicated um, some some work that was already in the literature, but replicated it in a college age population. So I looked at South Asian women and compared them to European American women. And one of the things we know is like, if you have a South Asian woman and a European American woman, and they're the same exact height and the same exact weight, so therefore the same exact BMI, the South Asian woman actually is gonna have significantly higher body fat percentage. And that's true of South Asians in general. Um, so actually in India, the, you know, here in the United States, the overweight BMI criteria is 25 and obesity is 30. And so in India, it's actually shifted downward. So overweight is 23 and obesity is 25. And so it just goes to show again that BMI just is not the best indicator of health. Um, and for South Asians, I think it can be particularly dangerous because if we're using BMIs as an indicator of health, you know, a South Asian person could come in and say, I'm really concerned about my weight gain and my health. And they could be a, you know, a clinician could say, you're, you're at a BMI of 23. You're totally fine. Don't even worry about it. We don't even need to talk about this. And we miss an opportunity to, again, like really listen to the client and trust that they know their bodies well. And maybe there's something to what they're saying. And maybe there's legitimate concern here. Um, and so, so that was an interesting thing I looked at. And the other interesting thing that came out of the research was I looked at this measure of cultural conflict amongst South Asian women. And there was definitely a correlation. It wasn't causation, but a correlation between high rates of uh, higher um, cultural conflict and eating pathology. So kind of disordered eating patterns that emerged and so it's just interesting to think about when you're integrating two cultures, does that end up impacting your relationship with food? Yeah, the cultural co conflict was that conflict between the South Asian culture and like the standard American culture, like sort of integrating those two and figuring out what that looked like kind of a conflict? Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, and a perfect example of how just additional layers that we're not always considering and also an example of if we impose the standard recommendations based on medicine that often were rooted in like Caucasian, European American, that culture, then we're missing opportunities to have conversations, but we're also generalizing when we don't need to be, when it's not appropriate to generalize and could be dangerous. Exactly. Yeah, I yeah. don't think you often think about that, but you, you're so right. I mean, so much of this research has been done with Caucasian individuals, European American individuals, and we, we come from different parts of the world where you're going to have different genetics and histories and all of that that we really need to include in the dialogue with our clients. Yeah, and some of it could even, we don't know exactly what's causing this, right? It could be even like the role of stress. There's so many things that we're not, you can just can't measure everything and it's hard to control for every little thing. And so, yeah, we just don't know. And to assume we know is just lots of missed opportunities for individualized care. Right. And then along those lines, what are some ways, we kind of just started to touch on this, we could do a better job with providing more cultural adaptations and considerations in the ways that we help people move towards improving their health. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what you're doing here. It's starting to ask these questions of like, you know, tell me how your cultural background, your ethnicity impacts your relationship with food and your body. 
um, just to share a quick story, like I, when I first got diagnosed with SIBO, I went to see a medical doctor and I was vegetarian at the time. And he was just like, all right, well, you need to follow this plan. And essentially it's like, don't eat beans and lentils and any dairy and eat meat and vegetables. So I'm like, so basically I don't eat meat. I don't have beans and protein and, um, any source of that with dairy. So you're just asking me to eat vegetables. And he was like, is this older white man? And he's just like, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sorry. You just kind of have to figure it out. And it was just so appalling. And so I think like, we just have to start having these more sensitive discussions about, you know, tell me about your background and how can I help you in that context with your history and your preferences and your culture and all of these things. Um, so I, I think that's a piece of it, but I think on a more systemic level, I'll tell you like being South Asian in the field of eating disorders and weight management in the psychology world, I often have felt like the only minority in the room. And I think if we, as a profession, I think we just have to do a better job including and making sure that we're getting people through our training programs um, that that are representative of many different cultures. And I try to do my best when a South Asian person comes into and requests me specifically to talk about eating and weight related issues. I do my best to take them on because it's just so hard to find someone that gets these nuanced kind of things um, about our right. culture. Yeah, right. Like we can do our best to, to try to be culturally sensitive and try to ask these questions, but ultimately, sometimes you can only go so far to really ex understand someone's experience. You can do your very best to listen and learn, but if we don't have systemic change in terms of diversity on psychology, the mental health field in general, but then also just medicine in general, there's a lot of room for improvement. I just, I think I just mentioned to you recently that this week I just watched a documentary that talked about the absence of the actually reduction in black men applying to medical school from 1978 to 2014. I forget if I mentioned that to you, but it was, uh, we got a pre-screening of this documentary and literally it was a hundred less from 1978 to 2014 of black men applying to medical school. And that's just statistic. I have a terrible memory, but it stuck with me because how on earth are we going to help a broad range of folks improve their health if we don't, they don't see themselves reflected in their providers? It's such a challenge. Yeah. And that's the thing, like there's a lot of South Asian medical doctors and that's just something that's been well represented for many years, mm -hmm. but not in the field of psychology. I think it's getting a lot better, um, certainly, but we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning, you and I have very similar backgrounds and training. We did a lot of behavioral weight loss, meaning we led groups where we were having people track their calories, reduce them. Why do you think those types of interventions are often so unsuccessful? And why do you think calorie counting is so commonly used still as a tool? And then one final question is, you know, what do you think typically have, what do you typically have folks do when they come to you and state weight loss as a goal now that might be different than what you and I used to do in our practice or what we learned? Oh gosh. Yeah. It makes me cringe to think that that was something that we talked to people about, but I know, <laughs> but it's Live okay. And learn. <laughs> and when you yeah. know better, do better. Right. Yeah. We're open to changing and growing, which I think is great. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just not sustainable. I think, you know, deprivation is not a state that we can constantly be living in. We live in a world where food is more accessible than it ever has been. And we're so much more distracted as a human race than we've ever been as well. And to be flexing that depri deprivation muscle all the time, I think leads to it's impossible. So I think it leads to a sense of failure. And I can't tell you, um, you know, how many people come into my office saying, yeah, I mean, I count calories, but if I went over, I just 
I blew it for the day and then I just ate whatever and I start over tomorrow. And it's like, that, that doesn't work in the long run. We're not, we're not getting anywhere if that's the process. And I remember clients coming in in our groups saying that that was happening to them too. So clearly it's mm-hmm. just not working, but I think it's still, it's still sticking around because it's, it's objective, right? It's, there's mm-hmm. numbers and it's clear. And I think it gives people this false sense of control. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think about it as like a, it's romanticized in some way. Like if you look back on an ex-boyfriend or something and was like, that was the best relationship of my life. And you have to have your friend jump in and say, no, no, no. Like you were miserable. There were a lot of things that were not great about that relationship. I see that as my role sometimes because I think people can get caught up in romanticizing that this is the thing that's going to work for me. Or you mean too, like sometimes you see that people like I, I tracked in the past and it worked and I was feeling really good at that time and not to discount their experience. Maybe there was some good aspects, but that's almost like this idea of smaller is better and weight loss is equals happiness. It can color our opinion sometimes and it's mixed and calorie counting is a ton of work and it can be valuable in a short period of time to gain awareness to some extent, but yet it, people get very reliant on it. And yeah. Yeah. You, you describe that perfectly. Exactly. I think that's so commonly the experience that I see amongst my clients. Um, and so to answer your last question about, you know, what do I talk to clients about when they come in and they say they want to lose weight? Um, it's, it's really a delicate thing, but I tell them initially, like I'm not taking weight loss off the table because I think that can feel really scary. It can turn people off right away and they can leave feeling hopeless. Um, but what I do say is I want you to help me understand what you've tried, what's been working for you, what hasn't worked for you in the long run. And I tell them like, we're, we're here to talk together and figure this out together, but we're not here to repeat what you've done in the past that hasn't worked. So let's get innovative. Let's try to do things differently. And let's try to stop focusing on someone else's rules and tap into your specific life and what's going on in your relationship with food and figure out if the way you're going about all of this is effective for you. Essentially, I wanna make sure um, what you're doing in your efforts to address your concerns about your body are serving you well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's basically by having that conversation, I think you're, you're helping them move towards autonomy in in whatever they're doing. Cause it's not like you can say like, we'll do X, Y, Z, even though people want that because X, Y, Z behavior could be, you know, really healthy and autonomous and freeing, or could be really restrictive and controlled. And you don't know unless you're in that person's body. So appreciate all the discussions you've had about autonomy. I think that's so crucial in this work. Um, I don't think it works any other way. Well, thanks. It's uh, my new favorite word. I say it like a hundred times a day now, so, (laughs) but I'm glad it's resonating. (laughs) Good, good. I wanted to chat about the National Weight Control Registry. So for the listeners, this is a registry where People have lost at least 30 pounds and kept it off for at least a year. On average, they have lost, I forget what the the average is, but they've lost more on average and they've kept it off for a bit longer. So these are the anomaly of folks that, you know, this, that you hear that stat, like behavioral weight loss doesn't work. Most people regain it. 95% is the stat we hear the most. And the National Weight Control Registry is studying these folks who somehow figured it out. So they, they try to study them. And I'm curious your thoughts about what we can and have learned from this registry, but perhaps also what we might not be considering when we look at this, this group of folks. Yeah. And I will, I'll speak to this with the caveat that like, I have not looked at this research in a while, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember, I think one, a few of the things that we've learned from this is that the people that are keeping their weight off, they are regularly engaging in some physical activity and they are modifying their diet in some way. 
Um, I believe the other thing is that they eat breakfast regularly mm-hmm. and they are not watching as much television. I, I think that was yep. one of the findings. Yep. Um, so there's definitely things we can take from that. I mean, undoubtedly movement is important and mm-hmm. looking at your diet's important, but, um, and, and, you know, how you're living your, your life in general. Yeah. The, the, the issue I have though, is, is, is what you're saying. Like, I think they are the anomaly and I have a lot of questions and I don't know for sure if they're measuring these things, but when we talk about modifying your food intake, I'm really curious to know what that looks like. And is it, are these people obsessing about food? Are they preoccupied with food? Are they, do they have good quality of life? Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Um, do they have, are they even measuring disorder eating or eating disorder tendencies? I don't, I don't know. So I think there's a lot of question marks that I have in my mind when I look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I think that um, you and I are both open to, by no means are we saying like, it's impossible to lose weight and keep it off. I think there's a ton of uh, biological factors that play in, like our body's got a, our bodies have a lot to say about where our weight's going to go, but it would be interesting. And I, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about like your experiences working with people who have had success in these areas. But I know for me, I haven't had the opportunity to meet that many folks who would fall into that category. There certainly are exceptions, especially as you think about like longer term. And that's partly because if people are maintaining a weight and feeling good in their body, like for five years, then they probably wouldn't come to see you or I. So that's part of it. Right. But it's, yeah, like we can probably learn some things, but there's a lot we don't know. And that's kind of what you're saying of like, they're, they're how they truly think about it. And I think even some of the, the research I've done in the past, we've sort of measured like, does weight monitoring affect disorder eating? We found no, but then again, I think that diet mentality and the stress around these things can be more subtle and it can be hard to measure. So it's like, I would want to sit down with that, those humans and talk to them and really get a feel for their, like, where are they at? Do they feel peace and freedom? Um, And I, so yeah, maybe one of them will hear this and and talk, talk to me, but um, that's the, I would agree. I think that's the piece that like, it's, it's just kind of a question mark. And there's so much the anomaly that we really are talking about a tiny piece of the pie. We, we can't generalize that much. I mean, we, yeah, we can maybe to an extent, especially if they feel it really at peace with food, but there's a lot of, a lot of questions there. So. Yeah. I hope that someone does listen to this and, and comes on the podcast to talk to you. Cause I, I feel the same way. I'd love to sit down and listen and to, to their story, but there's like, so much of research is so quantitative and there's this qualitative aspect to people's experiences that I think can be so valuable in understanding what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we need to collaborate with Brene Brown and learn how to do qualitative <laughs> research. <but. laughs> you know, I wanted to know if you've had experience working with folks that have been able to have weight loss as a goal and still make progress and improve their relationship with food. And if so, which strategies have best helped them achieve this goal? Yeah, it, it's challenging. You know, I can't say that I've worked with a lot of people who've lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off um, in my work with them because I, and that may be partly because that's not necessarily like the focus of our work together. It's really improving, as you said, like the relationship with food and their mm-hmm. body. And what I talk to clients about is if weight loss, ten, if, if that's a byproduct of all of this, fantastic. But um, the most important thing is that we get a handle on your relationship with food and your body. So the one thing that I do is I, I talk to them a lot about, um, you know, we do have to pay attention to food. You can't just, you know, be putting anything in front of you and eating it. And we've got to put some thought into what's going on. Um, one thing I do talk to clients about in terms of weight loss is looking at how frequently they're eating out and ordering food versus making food at home. And I think that can, for so many people who've been chronic dieters can be so dichotomous of an experience. Like I get to eat all the fun food if I order out and if I'm cooking at home, it's gonna be boring and bland. And I really try to work with clients and understanding like all your favorite food that you're ordering out, we can 
make at home and have it be delicious and tasty, but you just have so much more of an understanding of what's going on into your food and into your body versus when you're eating out. So I think that's like a major thing I work on with clients Mm -hmm. and also addressing stress and how they're living. So people are at least in the DC metro area, there's a lot of workaholics and they're skipping meals and then they overeat at dinner. So we're just thinking about how do we get you to create time and space in your life to have a better relationship with food and pay attention to it. Um, And same with exercise. It's really like so often exercise is this punishing, like I have to whip my body into shape and um, it, it can have that feel to it. And it's shifting that from, which can be aversive and not motivating at all. So it's more mm-hmm. about how do we make sustainable. it yeah, fun and enjoyable for you. Um, and lastly, we talk a lot about you know, their relationship with food as it relates to their emotions. So if you're using food to cope with your emotions consistently, weight loss is not gonna happen um, because you're not eating in response to hunger or fullness or anything like that. You're eating in response to emotions and we are human beings who have a lot of emotions. So um, learning to know what the emotions are and the physical sensations and the thoughts allowing them to come up, learning to live with them without having to escape them through food. Yeah, it sounds like the theme is really, well, there's different themes there. One is it's less focused on restriction and more focused on what to add in. Two is that there's this theme of like flexibility and sustainability in the approach and moving from rigid, fixed to more flexible. And, um, and yeah, that's just because like our human brains don't respond well to being told we can't have something and it's bad to have something. So it's reframing that, but also saying like, look what we can do and look at this. Well, I mean, guess going back to your cooking example, like look at the skill we can build. So um, that all of that is more more sustainable than the all the other things we've talked about. So yeah, and that's a good point. Like it, I you know, anything that we're doing has to be sustainable. Like we're not interested in doing something short term. If we're talking about weight loss and keeping it off, you have to be able to do it easily throughout your day and throughout your life. Right. I think that we both have probably had similar experiences where, and I think we're both pretty upfront, like fast weight loss. I'm not, I'm not your girl, right? Like this isn't the, we're in it for the long-term game. And yes, in some ways that's, I don't know if boring is not the right way to describe it because it's, it doesn't have to be boring, right? There's ways that we can shift to be enjoyable and enjoy the journey, if you will, hard, but doable, but yet it's not as flashy and fancy as promises of, you know, weight loss and glory (laughs) as we're sold all the time. Right. So it's, uh, it's like being authentic and real of like, realistic but what we can shift it to hopefully being self-affirming and listening to your body and listening to your emotions and that can be very rewarding and empowering it's just a shift in our our outcome a little bit and like you said kind of putting weight loss as like a as a fun extra byproduct and not making it the sole driving focus is really hard but really powerful if people can can shift that Yeah. And I think the people that end up calling you and I to schedule appointments are people who have been through that a ton and realize it's not effective. So now they want a different approach, but hopefully people will learn like to start with this approach before being disappointed so many times with other flashy kind of approaches. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They would maybe be a little skeptical if you promised the Oh, I got all, I got the the perfect plan for you. Let me tell you, they would be like, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so last question is a, a new question that I'm going to start asking my guests and I'm very excited about it. It is, what is one thing you feel truly autonomous internal or intrinsic motivation for? This could be health related or something else. <laughs> this is going to sound very nerdy and geeky. It's not <laughs> health related. I guess in some ways health related, but I feel so much internal motivation for staying super organized in my business and being really, really efficient. And I get 
so much joy out of that because uh, when I don't have, and this does tie into health, but like when I don't have anything hanging over my head at the end of the day or a week or month or whatever, and I'm organized, I just feel so much more free to put so much energy back into my personal life. So I am so all about staying organized and efficient in my business because it gives me so much freedom to, to do other things. Well, I, I love that answer, A, because I love organization spreadsheets, but also uh, it's our research brain, right? But also what's interesting to me is I know you and I know you used to struggle with that, right? Like I know you used to struggle with like getting your notes done. So how, so you've shifted it from like this should that hung over you to this intrinsic internal thing. So how did you do that? Yeah, I really struggled with this a lot. And so I really tackled the avoidance and I really confronted it instead of running away from it. Cause when I ran away from it, I just procrastinated and it kept building and building. And so I am so jazzed at the, I'm pumped about this, this idea of like, and it translates to all the work that we do with clients. Like mm -hmm. the more you confront the things that feel icky and uncomfortable and that you don't like, and you learn to have a better relationship with that part of yourself and figure out a new dynamic in that part of your life, it can be a game changer. And that totally was the case for me. So I just, I noticed the discomfort show up and I stayed with it and I forced myself to write the notes and I really moved away from perfectionism, which caught me up a lot in, in the procrastination. And I was just like, I'm going to write this clinical note. It's not going to be perfect and that's okay. Right. And yeah, that yeah. And I think too, tell me if I'm right or wrong with this, but it's you also, instead of feeling like, gosh, I really should do this. I'm not doing this, this like uh, sort of shoulds and sh sometimes shame and avoidance, you, you shifted it to, I want to do this because it'll make me feel better. I, you get to this point now, it sounds like where you're like, yeah, like I feel great when I do this because I can, it's like, it's shifting from that should to a want to, and also sort of integrated in your value of like taking care of yourself of like, this allows me more joy and freedom in other areas. It sounds like you got to the point where you kind of enjoy the organization tasks themselves for the sake of themselves, but you also associate it with how you're going to feel after, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. So yeah, it was, I was starting to notice as I was confronting this, like how much more free I felt. And I've guided some of my contractors at my practice through this process. Mm -hmm. And they'll say the same thing. Like, I just feel amazing when I don't have notes hanging over my head or whatever task. And it, it's a game changer. And that becomes intrinsically motivating to keep chasing that feeling of, I want to feel this every day. And I yes. want to get a kick out of actually doing the organizational stuff, the, the tasks themselves. I mean, part of me probably does enjoy that a little bit, but, mm -hmm. uh, but it's purely because I value so much now having that additional time in my life. Like, I don't want anything to take that time away from me anymore. Totally. I think that's so interesting because I think that's so much of what people want to know is like, how, how do I do this? How do I shift from external controlled to internal and some of it's like we um noticing what's contributing to the shoulds and like you said the sort of avoidance and the perfectionistic thinking but also then it is like asking yourself like what is that value and and how do i and asking yourself what that is and reflecting and um so that's a perfect example so i th thank you for sharing that i think that's really cool and um that's another thing that i think i've found helpful and i've only noticed this more recently um i'm actually notes wise i, I have more confidence there like i'm i think yeah. working in healthcare you just like have to get through it and so i'm like i can do a note fast because i've done it a million times but sometimes when any other task for me in the business is kind of um building up what i'll do is like remind myself not so much oh I'm so overwhelmed and fixate on the negative emotion I'll really be thinking about like okay that's there but how do I want to feel at 4 30 p.m when I go grab the kids and so I'm present with them and I'm not all these tasks aren't hanging over and so I, I kind of do the same thing and I've been a little bit more aware of it so it's again asking yourself that this would map onto relationship with food of like how do I want to feel at the beginning of my week or the end of the, my week. And, and that can map onto some of the shoulds that might be like 
meal planning and some of that, but doing it from that internal place, because I always say like, unless you have a personal chef, you're going to have to do some of that logistics, but taking away the shame, that's usually layered, but still that kind of reminding yourself like this will help me and here's how it's going to help me. So it's a, so yeah, thank you again for sharing that shift. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Thanks for asking the question. I hadn't really thought that deeply about it, but that's, you're exactly right. It's, it's focusing not so much on the short term, but really thinking about how this impacts me later and how do I want to feel later? Yes. Yeah. Humans are motivated by feelings and emotions. So yeah. How do I want to feel is our question, question of the day. So, (laughs) well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. I feel like I just downloaded a bunch of your knowledge, but also your personal experience. It was wonderful. I truly appreciate it and appreciate you. So thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. It was fun. I'm very intrinsically motivated to have this conversation. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you so much for sticking with us. I know this episode was long, but we had a lot to cover. And so just to recap some of the things we talked about, about how to make changes that actually work and focus on your goals without getting so fixated or stuck on focus on weight loss. We talked about the importance of not living in a state of deprivation. This is not something that is sustainable. So focusing on looking for ways to reduce restriction, focus on what you can add in, and really working on your mindset, having a more flexible mindset, moving from a fixed all or nothing mindset, perfectionistic mindset to a growth mindset, right? And we talked about some specific strategies to focus on how you feel and ways to shift from a should to a want to by asking yourself, how do I want to feel at the end of my day or at the end of my week? So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And as a final reminder, make sure you are on my email list, drshawnhondorp.com forward slash contact, or grab any of my freebies because I do have live masterclasses coming the week of April 12th. And if you aren't on my email list, you will probably miss the invite to know the dates and times. So I would love to have you there. It's all about top three myths for weight and health motivation. It's going to be super fun. I've been working really hard on it. So I would love to have you join one of those masterclasses. And even if you can't make it, you can get the replay. So have a wonderful week and talk to you soon.